If you're an evangelical Christian, or certainly if you're an evangelical insider, the name Mike Cosper and his rise and fall of Mars Hill 15-episode podcast published by Christianity Today between June and December 2021 is almost certainly familiar. For multiple days last summer, it was trending on Twitter, exceeding much political and sports news for its artful retelling of the story of a Seattle multi-site megachurch started in 1996 by Mark Driscoll. Mars Hill was one of the first evangelical churches to grasp the power of online preaching, and over 18 years, its sermon views came to regularly exceed 260,000 listeners per week. But as Mike's podcast depicts from the vantage point of the early founders, parishioners, and those who had their children baptized in the church, fellow pastors and church historians nationally, in 2014, it all came crashing down after Mark's patterns of bullying and what his colleagues called persistent sinful behavior led to confrontation by church elders and his subsequent decision to resign, not work on a restoration path. Mike's reflective podcast earned a listening audience a whopping 76 times the size of the church's listeners, hitting a nerve amongst not only the quarter of the country that would call itself evangelical, but others too. What is it about the structure of megachurches that leaves them more prone, perhaps, to the quick rise and fall of a charismatic leader? How does that compare to American politics, especially when our parties have weakened? And how does Mike's 15-year experience as a pastor temper what he and his colleagues chose to see and to hold up in this magnificent podcast that took American listeners by storm last year? Mike Cosper serves today as the director of podcasting for Christianity Today. He's also the founder of Harbor Media in Louisville, Kentucky. He hosts Cultivated, a podcast about faith and work, and he's the author of The Stories We Tell, a 2014 book about movies and television, and Faith Among the Faithless, and a 2018 book about Esther, as well as other books on worship, music, disenchantment, and wonder. John Ward is one of Faith Angle's 18 journalist advisors, so if you like what you hear, you can go back to episode four and hear his synopsis of a Miami Faith Angle forum. John has a new book coming this November called Testimony about the sometimes fractured halves of his professional life and his religious upbringing, which he talks about with Mike today. He also leads national political coverage for Yahoo News, where he's worked eight years. Before that, he was at Huffington Post, The Daily Caller, and The Washington Times. John's podcast, The Long Game, is about as pro-complexity, pro-nuance, and pro-context, even as Mars Hill podcast. And his first book in 2019 was Camelot's End on the epic clash between Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter in 1980. On the creation and burst of a podcast that tells us something about modern-day evangelical churches in America, enjoy the conversation. Mike, a lot of us have listened to your amazing podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And I was wondering if you could start by telling us how you came to even start that podcast in the first place. And then get into a little bit how far the reach went, because I think, you know, as much as you can share about those numbers, people will be interested to hear that. And then how you got there, how far it went, and then what you kind of learned from doing it. Yeah, I mean, the shortest answer is I was a pastor for about 15 years. And during that time, because of the nature of the church I was serving in, we had some connections to Mars Hill, and I knew some of the members. And around 2015, you know, we watched everything happen from a distance. 
at the time. And around 2015, I had a conversation with someone that I, I knew from the church. He was kind of starting in some new directions in ministry. I guess it was maybe 2016. We connected on it. And just as part of that conversation, I had transitioned out of my work and he was back in the marketplace doing his work. He'd been a pastor. And as he just shared his story and he just shared what happened in the aftermath to him, the physical toll, the spiritual toll, how long it took to kind of recover, it dawned on me that most of the time when these stories happen, they happen, they're front page news, but it's all about the pastor. And I began just thinking pretty steadily from there, like, how do we help people understand what happens to the members of the church, the members of the staff, the people who were burned out by the process, what the toll that takes? Because I think that's a factor in the way evangelicalism as a whole has processed a lot of these failures that they've not taken into account. It's always like, oh, the poor witness and the pastor themselves, the disgrace or the sort of the mob coming after him. But it's like, what's the actual physical spiritual toll in the community? So thought about it for years, probably around 2018, 2019, started having a, a few conversations about it. And then when I joined CT at 2020, it was something that I brought to the table when we first started having conversations and said, hey, I think this is a story we could tell. I think it's you know, a very specific example of a broad phenomenon. One of the unique things about Mars Hill is some of the things that tend to happen behind closed doors, like bullying, you know, narcissistic kind of things, misogynistic kind of things, they were all said from the pulpit at the church, you know, and you had this just incredible archive of audio and... Yes, stored on the internet, right? That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, it took us about a year and a half of reporting to get the thing ready to launch what happened after the launch is another whole kind of crazy story of people coming forward as it went, caused a lot of delays. We really wanted to slow down and tell it right. At this point, the series itself, like the core story, has had right around 20 million downloads between 12 episodes. We've continued to do some, some bonus material that's basically trying to do meta-analysis on questions like trauma, the problems with institutions. And we have a finale coming up here where I went to Seattle because all this happened during COVID, it was all done online. In April, I went to Seattle, met some of these people face-to-face. -face, and so the final episode where I'll get to put the voice of Mark Driscoll behind me for a long, long time will happen here in the next couple of weeks. I wanted to back up then and ask you about your mention of the fact that you were a pastor. Mm -hmm. That's something I have not honed in on before. I mean, I knew that you had some background in that work, but it strikes me as something that shaped a lot of your interest in this, your approach to it. So one thing I'd like to know is like more about that chapter of your life. Like mm -hmm. how long were you a pastor? What kind of church was that in? Yeah. So I was a pastor for about 15 years. It's a pretty typical story. There was a church planning boom at the end of the 1990s and a lot of factors went into that. It was really a shift in the strategy of church planting that had implications all the way across the United States because it was a shift from the primary driver of church planting being denominations to the primary driver being networks. There was a lot of grant money that went into it. Leadership Network really kind of drove the charge there. There was a big initiative called Burning Bush that led to the dramatic and wide expansion of things like Acts 29, the network Driscoll was a part of. 
but also Redeemer City to City. The ARC network started there. There was an initiative in the vineyard. And so you can kind of go across the board. There was just a lot of resources put into like-minded churches planting together, and it crossed a lot of denominational lines. So my church was part of that. We planted in 2000. I was 20 years old. And the bulk of our community was people who had, you know, really been displaced by other churches, grew up in the sort of boomer gen churches. They didn't make sense to us culturally because they were so enculturated by the kind of boomer thing. Would that be a lot of more majority type stuff? Yeah. So we, you know, our planting and and again, like I think this was true of Mars Hill and, and a lot of churches at the time, we didn't want to be political. You know, there was a kind of faithful presence idea that didn't necessarily have that language at the time, rooted in the neighborhood, rooted in the culture of the people who were attending. Yeah. So I served there. I was volunteer for the first year, came on staff the second year. With church planting, you wear a lot of hats. You know, I remember hearing somebody one time say, you got to cook till the cook shows up. Primarily worship and the arts. We ran an art gallery, later a center for the arts, this big facility with music venues and studios and all this. But from time to time, I was the executive pastor. I was the community groups guy. I ran capital campaigns. You're just constantly changing hats. And, you know, we had a similar story to the Mars Hill story where over time, some toxic issues in our leadership, our primary leader in particular, just took its toll on the community. That was the primary driver for me to exit. I loved the church. My expectation at the time was that I was going to be, you know, I would have probably told you I could retire from this job. I, I loved what was happening. But as things got really unhealthy, as there was a churn with staff turning over, I decided to leave. And so I had a lot of resonance with the Mars Hill story because of it. So I, I left at the end of 2015, left with the desire to, to launch a nonprofit that was kind of a faith and culture thing. Turned out 2016 was a, a bad year for fundraising for a nonprofit if you didn't have a, an affinity for the Trump thing, which I didn't, but ended up pivoting into launching a studio where we produced a lot of podcasts, did some web design, things like that for a variety of nonprofits, churches, individuals, and folks in the marketplace. Mike, I wonder if I could ask, following up to John's question about your work as a pastor and how that shaped sort of how you told some of this story and, and you, really. I know John has a deep friendship with Yuval Levin and that you referenced some of his stuff in your podcast as well about performative versus formative. And it's supposed to be a formative enterprise, right, when you're in a leadership role. Yeah. How did that kind of color the journalistic tale that you told here? I mean, it's an event that involves evangelical religion and not having a lot of oversight and sort of structure. It's a story of religion sort of being undone. It's a story of many things, but you told it more like a sympathetic artist that draws us in. It's a lovely, if people haven't listened yet, really would encourage that. Just try the first one or two and you'll get hooked. Everybody else did. But how did your view of human nature and your formative experience as a pastor shape how you told the story? Yeah, I would say, again, like when you think about the parallels, I would say in the early days of our community here in Louisville, it was just a deeply... We were very serious about friendships, relationships, all the kind of cliched phrases now of like, we're going to do life together, you know, all the, all the stuff you hear all the time that's kind of church jargon. But it was really true. I mean, we really did it. 
we all moved into a neighborhood together. We got jobs in that community. We served that community and had a lot of friendships. We, you know, we were all getting married. We were having kids. It was that kind of thing. And again, you hear that story at Mars Hill. But, you know, I would almost say, if you think about Matthew Crawford's language, I don't know if you're familiar with Matthew Crawford's work, but he has this language of like cultural jigs where there are these essentially formative pathways in various institutions and places and culture that naturally steer individuals and communities in certain directions. And I think one of the challenges for evangelicalism right now is that the cultural jig for pastors leads them towards this mode of being a celebrity, a rock star, a larger-than-life kind of personality. I mean, I think that happened to us. You know, we got to a certain size, 2,500 or so, and the pressure from the people around us and from within was, now you got to go really big. Now you got to go national. you got to start writing the books and all that kind of stuff. Again, like you hear the Mars Hill story, it was very similar in a lot of ways. Now, I think there was a toxicity with Mark that was – again, larger than life, right? And it's why it makes it such an interesting story, but it's a story people can really can really find themselves in. And that's the shift. There's probably not a single moment, but there's a, there's a tide that carries people towards, leaders in particular, towards pulling out of the community, pulling out of those relationships, and focusing on how big and how wide can I get. And I'll just, last thing on this is that with Mars, the thing that made that so larger than life for them was that very early on they committed to this media strategy, media ministry that got bigger than the church immediately. Hundreds of thousands of hits on YouTube and stuff. Ideas and strategies that were way ahead of the curve of other churches and took other churches five, ten years to catch up. I can't help but think in terms of generational or at least decades-long cycles here because that period that you mentioned that your church started in was a really interesting period. You had a, and I'll connect it to the 70s in a minute here, but I mean, in the mid 90s, you had this really wild Pentecostal movement among a lot of churches, including the one I grew up in, which was centered around Toronto and Pensacola, Florida, which I think is where Brownsville was just kind of extreme kind of crazy things like people falling down a lot, but also some barking. Yeah. Holy barking, holy laughing. Imitation of animals. Yeah. And then in that, in like the early 2000s, you had sort of what you were talking about, which also ran the gamut of uh, Brian McLaren and the emerging church or the emergent church. I can't remember exactly which was the term, but, and then, and so why I mentioned that is because the kind of ethos you're describing is very much similar to the kind of ethos that characterized the church I grew up in in the 70s and early 80s. My parents, you know, they had the same sort of North Star for the church that they started, which ultimately became Sovereign Grace Ministries, which a lot of people will recognize that name. And, you know, they wanted to do life together. They wanted to have sort of a, a radical, almost communistic, socialistic ethos of sharing your your life and your goods and earthly possessions together. So it just sort of makes me wonder, like, where are we at now? Like, because if these things go in decades long cycles of roughly 20 or 30 years, and this is two cycles of that as a small sample size. But I wonder if you think there's anything to that and how that might illumine where we are now and what might be coming down the pike. Because there is, as your podcast demonstrates, there is some kind of reckoning going on, I think, among 
especially after the Trump years, and as we head into possibly more Trump years, you know, among some section of evangelicals. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing that's, I think, in some ways easier to see in hindsight. Totally. It is pretty remarkable, I think, that since the early 70s, every 10, 12, 15 years, you hear this language of, you know, we're the church for the next generation. God's doing a new thing right now. And the sort of world-changing language, like it just repeats itself, but it repeats itself, you know, among different demographics, which I think should make us really suspicious of that language. Like what's, maybe it's not so helpful and maybe we're to a certain extent fooling ourselves with it. What is interesting to me is because of the way media has reshaped the landscape, you know, you have these massive sort of commercial movements like Bethel and Hillsong, which were really commercially driven, you know, church expansions. Hillsong at its peak, I think, had 150,000 people, churches around the globe. And what got them there was not necessarily that Brian Houston was this dynamic preacher, speaker, or whatever. I've never actually heard him preach, so I, I don't know how great he was. But the thing people talked about was the music. The music was marketed. The music was a commercial product. Mm-hmm. I think that is, in a lot of ways, the model. Almost every church I'm aware of that I've been in contact with for the last few years, you know, if you dig around on the site, they're recording their own music, writing their own music, marketing their own stuff. It is that new model. I think the video multi-site thing has influenced that a lot, though some churches like Andy Stanley's network is starting to actually move away from that. So I don't, I don't know what that foreshadows. And then there's COVID, right? Like, COVID sent us all home. We were all video venue, you know, <laughs> attendees for some window of time. I do think it's dangerous and scary that commercialism has come to the forefront. In some ways, evangelicalism has always been a, a bit of a celebrity-driven movement, right? Like Billy Graham at the center of it, like tells you a lot. And it's one thing for to say, like, you have a celebrity, powerful leader driving a movement, but when that becomes the model that the key leaders inside the movement think, okay, I have to follow in those footsteps in terms of path and reach and all of this. And you get, again, these megachurch models, whether it's Bill Hybels or Craig Grishel right now or Stephen Furtick or whomever, who are there at the peak. The drive is, let's go as big and as wide as we can. It is impossible to do that formative work in community with mass culture. Because the mass culture can't identify what matters and what's important, local communities, much less in the way life actually works, which is small, intimate, local friendships and relationships, which is where transformation really happens when you're talking, you know, spiritual formation. I'm thinking of somebody like the guy who translated the message. Eugene Peterson? Yeah, because we're we're hammering a little bit on the idea of celebrity here, which... um, Caitlin Beatty's book is going to be talking about, which comes out any day now, I think next week, probably. We'll link to that in the show notes, too. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was really struck by this book, American Covenant by Philip Gorski. He's a professor at one of the Ivies, I think. And um, he talks about the need for, I think it applies to almost any sort of attempt to change a narrative or whatever, which is that you need new narratives and new heroes. Somebody like Peterson comes to mind. He was a local pastor who really f- emphasized the local. So, I mean, do you think that that's a way to lay out an argument beyond theory and, and propositions? If you're, you know, somebody like you, who I think 
doesn't like the commercialization, doesn't think that it's good for American Christianity or Christianity globally and everything else. You know, in terms of like the trends that are going the wrong way, who are other sort of archetypes or um, living or deceased folks who could serve as symbols of the way that you think is the right way to go or a better way? Yeah, I think there's a lot of great stuff coming out of Renovari. Is that in Richmond? It's a broad network, right? It was started by Richard Foster and Dallas Willard in the, I think, the late 80s, early 90s. Today, I believe one of the primary leaders is James Bryan Smith, and he's doing he's doing some good, interesting work. But then obviously, I think the work of Dallas Willard in particular and, and Richard Foster as well, just really, really profoundly important stuff. Gary Moon has a biography of Willard that I would commend very highly because it's just – you see this story of someone who, the people who knew Willard, when you hear them talk about him, they talk about how his presence, when he would walk in the room even, or when you would sit down with him, he just sort of oozed this sense of grace. And, you know, people talk about the aroma of Christ. It was that kind of thing. And you hear similar stories about Peterson. So I think there's quite a few of them. Here's the danger though, right? Peterson could just as easily become another marketed brand. And I think we're tiptoeing in that direction at the moment in ways that concern me. Do you have any examples of that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, to come back to the mass culture thing, right? Like the phenomenon behind it is that things emerge and they go far and wide, but because they're consumer goods, they get consumed. They wear out their sort of purposefulness. And so Music is the easiest example to see of this. If you go look at the old, you know, the church copyright licenses are the, is the organization that every church reports what music they're playing on Sundays. And if you go look at their charts, they're all posted online, like go back five years and you'll say, oh, wow, like a lot of these songs have gone away. And then you go back 10 and it's way more. And then, you know, 15 years and they're, they're long gone. You look at church history People have been singing the Psalms for, you know, the church from the beginning and then all the way further further back in Judaism. Isaac Watts, you know, founder of the English hymn, his songs have been sung for more than 200 years now, 300 years now. And so the shift is that these things become consumables and the danger, you know, Hannah Arendt talked about this. There is this danger that the things that have been stable and lasted in history can be converted into consumable goods that kind of uses them up as well. Uh, I think the story of Romeo and Juliet is one of them. Like how many Romeo and Juliet movies have we had and remakes of it and the different productions that set it in the 1920s or the 1960s, you know, these sort of packaged consumable versions of them that now I think a lot of people hear, oh, we're going to do a Romeo and Juliet thing. And they kind of roll their eyes and go, oh, that, that old saw again. I don't know if I can take it. So I think there's some danger of that with something meant to last, like the work of a Peterson or a Willard or, and again, like the contemporary songwriters and stuff. What are we going to be singing in a hundred years that the church is writing right now? I'm not sure there's very much of that. It's interesting, your reflections on like the consumer culture, entrepreneurial sort of dynamic nature of American religion in contrast to some other places. We're doing a little bit more work these days in parts of Europe with journalists over there. A lot of John's friends who are political journalists will cover a politician and they'll get at his or her story in detail and they'll see it. And sometimes it's got a sort of a 
I think you had a line about this in the in one of the maybe it was I can't remember it was episode five, six, seven, somewhere in there about the mind of Mark Driscoll. And it was maybe it was at Brooks or the Preston Scholar. Anyway, it was describing sort of the the little bit of the craziness of that. There was a memorable book written about two decades ago about the hypomanic edge, suggesting that a little craziness is linked to a lot of success in America, in our immigrant culture. And I wonder, as you reflect on Mark in particular, you know, how do you, not to armchair psychoanalyze him, but how do you assess his way, his mind? This thing of speaking for God is a very powerful thing with people, and that was obviously a big deal. It's probably a very powerful thing for many pastors in certain, some strange way. But how do you view his sanity? <laughs> So I don't want to, you know, get slapped with a libel lawsuit. So let me speak broadly. Let me reframe the question. Is Mark Driscoll insane? Yes or no, Mike Cosper? <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it this way. So I think Mark is representative of exactly what you described. You read like the Steve Jobs biography, and there is a sense that people would talk about like the reality distortion field. He'd walk in a room and demand something of his engineers and stuff that they were they would all say like that's insane like it's not possible and then in some cases you know he'd show up and say you know i want a phone with no buttons and they'd say you're crazy and then the iphone comes out the other side but then other times he would say you know we don't follow the tracking of like what people like and don't like you know we don't test consumers in terms of our products and all that and people talk about that he'd show up at a staff meeting and he'd make those kind of claims and, you know, company-wide, this is not how we do things and all that. And then he'd leave and Tim Cook would then get on the stage and go, okay, here's the data. <laughs> so there's something just very performative that, you know, I wonder, do you have to have some degree of that in order to, to be successful? The Theranos story is, is all that. It was pure performative. It was purely built on her charisma to attract all this money and these respectable leaders and, and all of that kind of stuff. To what degree is it crazy? To what degree is it, again, kind of back to the cultural jig? There's incentives to perform in those ways that are profound. You know, Chuck DeGroat's book, How Narcissism Comes to Church, is well worth reading on that because it's a chicken and egg question too. Like there's something about the culture of evangelicalism that attracts those personalities and has a lot of staying power for it. So, yeah, I mean, I just think it's a, the collision of a whole lot of factors that attract certain kinds of people with certain kinds of pathologies. But the universal nature of it is amazing because you look at the different stories and you see the kinds of decisions that were made, the kind of toxicity, the abuse, you know, the patterns – they're all the same, you know? And it's not like these guys are getting in the room and saying like, okay, here's how you bully. Here's how you dominate. Here's how you hurt people. There's something about human nature and there's something about, a, again, this kind of specific pathology, I think, that shows up in those spaces again and again. But what I think made the podcast unique was that, as we talked about earlier, you come from a pastoral background. So I think you're, as you expressed, you wanted to tell the story of people in the church who got chewed up and spit out. And that seems a pastoral sort of motive there. But you combined with it a real sense of journalistic rigor. Where did that latter component come from? I mean, we've talked about your pastoral background. What's your background in journalism and where did that all that come from? 
So I don't really have a, a background in journalism beyond having done a fair amount of documentary work as a podcaster since 2015, 2016. So to the degree to which that counts as journalism, I think is important. You know, I had a lot of great support and counsel and direction from inside CT that I think helped enormously. And so a lot of credit goes to, to them, to Eric Petrick, my exec producer, and to, you know, the editorial folks that were involved, Andrea Palpendilly, Daniel Silliman, Kate Shelnut, to some degree. And, and obviously this is a way oversimplification, but the thing we kept coming back to is we just want to make sure that we're telling the truth. We want to shave out the sensationalism as much as we can, though there were sensational things about what happened that you couldn't, you know, be truthful about without telling them. So a lot of that does show up, but there's an enormous amount that didn't. The one element that I would say is, is a huge part of the background for me is just this kind of podcast journalism, radio journalism, it's something I've sort of had an obsession with since really since my, you know, being a teenager listening to This American Life on weekends before anybody really knew what a podcast was. So it's definitely been an, an affinity for me, but fairly new vocation. Well, Mike, I have a quick CT question. Maybe this is really more for John. You know, there have been a few pieces you guys have run in recent years that have really popped. Obviously, the, the Trump decision and executive editorial piece was one of those. And and Mars Hill, I mean, my gosh, the, the reach. But John Ward wrote a piece in Christianity Today this past May called Being a Political Journalist Made Me a Better Christian and talking about your sense of how a lot of conservative Christians, especially in the country, distrust the media today, the big wide gulf, noble call of a journalist. And so, John, can you tell us a little bit about you know your view to the question you just asked Mike? Why are, are many evangelical Christians so skeptical of the media? How do those two fields intersect? You know, what have you learned in the quest you have connected to a, a forthcoming book this fall? Well, like Mike just said, he was guided by this question of wanting to tell the truth and the way they told their story. And, you know, I was going to follow up just by saying it sounds like it was a learning process. I and mean, then we could talk about, if we have time, maybe we don't, about some of the things that drew criticism, like the mention of there was something about women in an early episode where I think you got a lot of flack for that. And then the Josh Harris thing also, you know, I think I'm curious whether on your reflections on, on what you would have done differently if, if you could do it over on those ones. But the whole question of like wanting to tell the truth is it's funny to me actually now after 20 plus years in journalism, because that's always been my basic guiding motto from somebody who was, you know, in their early to mid 20s working for the Washington Times, from somebody who went on to work for Tucker Carlson, who then went to work for Ariana Huffington, who's now been eight years almost at Yahoo News. I've worked at a lot of different places. And I think working at the Washington Times was, it was an interesting place to start for me because I came from a very evangelical conservative background. You know, working at the Times I didn't want to be seen as somebody who was had an agenda or carried water for any point of view. I wanted to, because that really offended my sense of truth telling, you know, the idea that I would go out and cherry pick facts or tell certain stories to serve an agenda really offended that question of how do we tell the truth? What is the truth? That kind of went to the core of the way I had been raised as a Christian. 
I mean, one of the ironic things to me about the folks from Bethel, what's the name of the, of the head guy there, Bill Johnson? He and, and others in that world have really glommed on to this idea of the seven mountains mandate over the last decade or so. And I haven't kept track of like how closely they're espousing that philosophy now. I assume it's still fairly prominent. But that idea is that Christians should go into the different channels or arenas of culture and live out their faith. And that's something that I was doing back in 2001, 2002, when I entered journalism. And, and it's ironic to me that folks like myself who spent the years learning politics, learning journalism, were loudly sounding a warning in 2015 and 2016, not about the ideological impurity or the partisan disagreement that we had with Donald Trump because we were somehow turning to Democrats, but based on our our study of history and politics and journalism and the way that all these things worked, we were sounding the alarm about the threat to democracy there. That was roundly rejected and ignored by these folks. And so, you know, that question of what is the truth and how do we tell it has guided me all along. And in some ways now, 20 plus years later, you know, it can almost sound naive and simplistic. It certainly has more, more texture to it now, I would say. I think my idea, of, my answer to the question of Pontius Pilate's famous question, what is truth? It's a more complicated answer now. And I think that's just the fruit of experience and, and years. I don't want to say age because I'm still in my mid-40s, but that whole question is, is, is a big part of what I try to explore in the book. And it's not the only focus, but it's really a wonderful, you know, it's such a wonderful, I think, life-giving area of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I share that. And I think to your question about the objections or the, some of the criticism the series got, a lot of, I would say the vast majority of the decisions that we made editorially around some of that stuff, I just really stand by it. You know, the episode that we did about women, that one, that one received a lot of flack in a couple of directions, really kind of from far ends of the spectrum. So I would say sort of from the left, we got a lot of criticism that the language that was often used is that we didn't center victim stories a lot. And that's a tricky question, right? So we talked about it broadly, and we talked about it in terms of what was being communicated from the pulpit, and we talked about it from sort of Christian community reaction more broadly as well. But man, I mean, it was hard to get people on the record with a lot of those stories because you think about it and it's some of the most intimate details of their lives, their marriage, their sex life, their parenting. Can you blame someone for not wanting to record their own voices and broadcast to a few hundred thousand or a million people, you know, some of the most intimate and painful details of their lives. That was one thing that was just a constraint. But I think one of the most interesting criticisms we got was the fact that we talked a, a fair amount about sort of left of the evangelical world, progressive Christians like Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie was on the podcast talking about her own experience uh, around the time of Mars Hill and, and Rachel's response to it as well. And that got a lot of critique because Rachel was not an evangelical and, and held a lot of views that are objectionable to evangelicals. And we spoke positively, positively of her. We didn't bend over backwards qualifying with here's all the reasons why we disagree with Rachel, because I think it was important to just say, look, 
here's this whole swath of people that embraced Mark and shared platforms with him and promoted his books and endorsed his books and all of this stuff. And in the aftermath of a lot of the stuff that was endorsed, the way he talked about marriage, I mean, you look at some of the names that endorsed his marriage book, and then you read the book and you go, oh my gosh, this thing is crazy. The fact is, at the end of the day, like Rachel got that right. Rachel was right, and they were wrong. I wanted to kind of leave that burden on people, which is what we did at the end of that episode. Like, again, we didn't qualify because I just wanted to come down and say, like, look, y'all missed this. I missed it, you know? And that's a big, big, big deal. One takeaway for me from the podcast is just the nuance and complexity and breadth and color of the story. And I think we can want in our political times to make sure that the stuff we read is pure and short and easy. But <laughs> right truth is complex. And that's the great stuff that John writes for Yahoo News and the book. And I think the podcast you do, John, draws us out with every guest. I don't know how many hours there are on Rise and Fall and Mars Hill, but there's a lot. And there's a lot of work behind it. That complexity and the gray shades rather than clean black and white, easy, was one, you know, really rich takeaway that just sort of, I think, leaves that. We should thank you both so much, sincerely, for taking time. John, you're fighting through a, a, a sickness. So, thank, you know, any last exit question from you? You know, I think the obvious one would just be, what now for the CT podcast? You know, what's, is there another big one coming like this? Or is it more, you want people to focus on a stable of different shows? Yeah, we, we do have a stable of new shows coming starting this fall. We have a series called The Slow Work. It's hosted by Sandra McCracken. It's a whole new series. She's been podcasting for a while, but this is really about the creative process in a way that I think is going to have implications for lots and lots of people. So I'm pretty excited about that. You know, we just announced that Russell Moore is our new editor-in-chief. We'll be doing number of things podcast-wise with him, including a new sort of news and issues-related show that'll be launching here in the next couple months. And then I have begun work on the next long-form narrative series. This is actually going to be a, an ongoing series where each season will have a sort of specific story, specific focus, but in ways that are very similar to Mars Hill. The goal of this series is to look at the past, look at specific moments in sort of 20th century evangelical history and try to understand, you know, how those stories have shaped where we are right now. It's a fragile time. I mean, the, the coalition that existed 12, 15 years ago amongst evangelicals is fractured in profound ways right now and, you know, seems to have a trajectory where those fractures are just going to get worse. So I think the more we can turn the rocks over and look around and go, okay, how did we get here? And particularly given the caricatures that are being told on each end of that spectrum, I'm eager to do that. So we've got, got one in particular coming, and we'll have more to say about it very soon. 20 million listener downloads is a lot of people. Thank you for enriching our lives. Take care, you guys. Thanks. Thanks, Josh. Uh, thanks for all the kind things you've both said about the series. Faith Angle helps connect mainstream journalists with leading storytellers from religious America. Thanks for listening.